Awesome. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, God, thanks for this morning, for the chance to come together and to proclaim as a church, uh, God, that all the glory is yours. Lord, we do pray that you would take our lives and just let them be used for your glory. God, that we would be humble and submissive to that and whatever that looks like and however it is that you sovereignly and providentially choose to move in and through us for the sake of your purposes and for the sake of your glory. God, would we be um, willing, would we be humble, joyful servants in your hands? God, we pray you would speak through your word this morning. Uh, Show us a bit of yourself through the book of Esther and teach us what it is to live in response to what we see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Esther chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 18 verses of that chapter, which is the bulk of Esther chapter 2, but we're going to save a little bit for next week. As you get open to there, uh, you may or may not know that on Wednesday last week, Keisha, do you know what Wednesday last week was? Six months from Christmas, that's right. If you don't know the Bannister family, they love Christmas. You should for sure know the Bannister family. Um, it's six, six months from Christmas, and uh, some people, like Keisha, keep track of those kinds of things. You may not have noticed it. I bring it up because uh, there's a piece of that Christmas story that's uh, very popular. It's part of what we read every December when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And it's the portion of that story where a group of wise men or magi from far away travel to see Jesus. And when they arrive, what they say in Matthew 2, 2 is that we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. From, from far away, they saw this star rise, and they followed that star to the place where Jesus was so that they might bow down and worship him. I want you to hold that in your mind because in it, there's both a picture for us and a challenge, and it's a picture and a challenge we're actually going to see this week in Esther chapter 2. Esther's going to give us a star shining in a bunch of darkness in a place that uh, is incredibly worldly in literally the presence of an individual who is just driven by and fueled by his own flesh. And Esther is going to shine there and ought to, for us, light the way for us to worship Jesus even as we read about something that took place hundreds of years before his birth. So she is this star. But then in Philippians 2.15, Paul challenges the people of Philippi to shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. So for any follower of Jesus, we live in broken places surrounded by a bunch of darkness. The challenge for us is to shine, that we might allow people to be drawn in to worship Jesus. That's actually the roadmap for us today. How Esther, the person, not just the book, but the actual characters who we're going to see Uh, the individual this morning, how does she draw us to worship Jesus? And then in turn, how can we, in in a dark world, in a broken world, shine and draw people in to worship Jesus? And I wanted to give just like one handle for that this morning. It's certainly not all encompassing, but it's something that comes right out of Esther chapter two. A precursor, and then I'll give you kind of the main point for where we're headed today. The precursor is this, 
The book of Esther, and I mentioned this before, is incredibly messy. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of brokenness. And really, it runs through every person who is a part of the story. There is no singular moral exemplar that we could hold up and point at and say, yeah, just be like this person. That's the goal. That individual doesn't really exist in the book of Esther. Esther, Mordecai, they have some moments that uh, we could be drawn toward and say like, that's really what it looks like to be faithful or to live obediently. But on the whole, they participate in the brokenness like anybody else in the story. And that's gonna start really in today's section. There are some difficult questions to answer that the author of the book of Esther gives no answer to. And so we'll kind of pull those out as we go along and, and make note of them and acknowledge the fact that they're there. But we don't have clean answers for why it is that some of the things happen in the story. It's just broken. It's just people uh, living broken, sinful, flesh-driven lives at times, while at the same time trying to figure out how is it that I follow the Lord faithfully and obediently. And it's complicated and it's messy. And that's going to start today. Here's where we're headed. The main point this morning is this, that how God views us transforms how we view others. How God views us transforms how we use others. We're going to break this section of scripture into four pieces. I'm actually going to have um, someone in the congregation reading this morning. And so at a few various points, I'm going to have Ben Wagner read for us, and then we'll talk about that section. So he's going to read the first four verses of chapter two. And if you've got a Bible, you can follow along with him as he reads Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Ready? Here we go. Chapter 2. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Hegai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Ashtai. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Thanks, Ben. This is the second time that you see King Ahasuerus, remember when we were introduced to him in chapter one, right? He's this kind of arrogant, attention-seeking. He thinks he's got all the authority. He's incredibly rich in abundance, uh, unlike really you would ever experience in life unless you were the, the king in a place like this. It's the second time we've seen him really fly by the seat of his pants, where something's going on, and this man that projects this image of authority instead of making decisions on his own, has someone make a decision for him. And it's setting a template. That's going to be the way that King Ahasuerus makes decisions throughout the entire book. It's the second time in two chapters that it's happened. The first time, what do I do with Vashti? She didn't come in uh, to the party when I asked her to. And his group of advisors say, well, you should remove her from being queen. And then sometime later, he remembers what he did to Vashti. It's actually been years at this point. 
that big party was pulling some folks together so that he could have like a war council before going into battle against the Greeks. That whole war has taken place. They lost it. It's been about four years and he's sitting on his throne lonely or something and he remembers Vashti and he pulls back together the advisors and he says, what do I do now? And someone else makes the decision for him. Note something else in here. And it's about the motivation for what King Ahasuerus is going to lay out and what's going to happen that pulls Esther into this story. There's a significant difference between regret, remorse, and repentance. All three of those are different things. Let's just offer some definitions. Regret would be to say that you've got a sense of loss over something that's happened. I quit my job broke up with my boyfriend or girlfriend, we moved into a new house, now some time has passed and I regret the loss of the thing that I no longer have. That's regret. Remorse would be to say that you have like a sense of pain because of wrongdoing that you've done to another person. Remorse requires compassion, that you could see that you hurt someone and say, I wronged them. And then that remorse would lead you likely to seek forgiveness or reconciliation in some form. Repentance is different. Repentance is an awareness of sin, a sorrow for sin, and a turning away from sin. Charles Spurgeon defines it this way. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. J.I. Packer, in kind of some more uh, flowery language, says it this way, that repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. And as your knowledge grows at these three points, so your practice of repentance is enlarged. I bring that up to say this. Ahasuerus doesn't have remorse. He certainly doesn't have repentance. He regrets what he's lost. He doesn't remember Vashti and think to himself, wow, I really wronged her. I should do something to make right the fact that I wronged her. He's sitting on his throne and he thinks to himself, I no longer have a wife. How do I fix it? How do I fill the gap of the thing that I have lost? He knows nothing of repentance and we'll see that throughout the story. At no point in the book of Esther is there a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that he has committed it, and a resolution on the part of Ahasuerus to forsake that sin. He regrets something. It's not remorse. It's not repentance. It's just, I've got a a hole here now because of a decision that I made, and I want to fill the hole. Let me give kind of like a little mini sermon here. This is free with the price of admission this morning. There's nothing unique in a Christian when it comes to having feelings of regret or remorse. Anyone can have those feelings. Anyone can have feelings that say, I made this decision and I regret that I did it. How do I fix it? Anyone can have feelings that say, I made this decision and it hurt another person, whether because I did it out of anger or I said something out of malice or I acted out of jealousy or lust or whatever the case might be. I hurt this other person and now I want to make it right. You don't have to be Christian to feel that way. What's unique in the Christian is repentance. 
that a feeling of regret might be used by the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the reality of the fact that you have sinned. And then that would lead you to repent, not just to fill the gap because of the loss that you have, but to see the evil of sin, mourn the fact that you committed it, and then empowered by the Holy Spirit, take steps to forsake that and walk in obedience to the Lord. The same is true of remorse. What's unique about remorse in the life of a Christian is that remorse is something that the Holy Spirit can use to open our eyes to the fact that we've sinned against someone. And that part of our repentance is making right how we've hurt that person, seeking forgiveness, seeking reconciliation, but also verbalizing the fact that we sinned, mourning that sin, and then forsaking it and walking in obedience to the Lord. That means we have to understand what sin is, who it's against, why it's so weighty that ultimately our sin, though it may impact another person and may have been directed at another person, our sin is against God. And that's weighty. It has consequences. The life of a Christian is a life that's marked by repentance. It's the initial act of repentance that sets us apart as those who belong to God in Christ. And it's a lifestyle of humble repentance that marks us in lifelong relationship with him. Repentance in the life of a Christian is a continual process. One that makes us increasingly love what we used to hate. Before we were believers, we did not love the things of God. Repentance as a lifelong act makes us love the things of God and makes us hate the things we used to love, which would be to hate the things of our sin and to hate the things of our flesh. Only repentance can lead to true whole life transformation. Regret and remorse could lead anyone to take steps to kind of like maybe try to better themselves or just have better behaviors, modify their behavior. It's repentance that really leads to true, deep transformation in the life of an individual. And that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Ahasuerus is flying by the seat of his pants, regrets what he did to Vashti, goes to his group of advisors and says, how do we fix this? And they put forward this plan to bring a bunch of women to him and choose the next queen. Ben, if you would read for us the next paragraph, which are verses five through seven. If you've got your Bible open, you can follow along. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is, Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. What we're doing over the first kind of five weeks, really three chapters of the book of Esther, is we're just looking at each one of the figures that's prominent in the book, Hashuerish, then Vashti, now Esther, next week Mordecai, the week after that, Haman. So what do we learn about Esther here? And how do those things point us to something about God? That's what we're doing this morning. Let's just walk through these verses. We learned some things about Mordecai, 
But as a family member, some of what we know about Mordecai is true about Esther. For instance, she has this impressive Jewish pedigree. That's why you get the list of family members that ultimately goes back to son of Kish, a Benjaminite. That tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, that's the tribe of Saul, the first king over the United King kingdom of Israel. So to have that in your family lineage is saying something. You're not just any Jewish person. You're a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. It's the same place that the first king of Israel came from. He was a Benjaminite. That's important. The other, the next thing we learn is that she's living in exile, literally. Verse six, look down at it. If you read it in the Hebrew, it would say this. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, who had been exiled from Jerusalem among the exiles who were exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had exiled. It's like the author saying, do you get my point? This is a Jewish individual, impressive pedigree, not living among God's people, not living in the land that God had given them. She's somewhere else. But the point is this, she may be somewhere else, this family may be somewhere else, but we're supposed to understand that they're absolutely being used for God's purposes. That God can use people, does use people, no matter where they are, for the sake of his purposes and his will. Matthew Henry, who's uh, got a great commentary over the entirety of the Bible, says this about the book of Esther. Though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is. And what we're supposed to understand about Esther is that even though she's living outside of the land that was given to her people, the finger of God is guiding her life. We learn that Esther is an orphan. We don't know how her parents died, but we know that she's been taken in by Mordecai, a family member who's cared for her as if she were his own daughter. We also learn that Esther is beautiful. In fact, in verse seven, the author takes two kind of passes at making that known. Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. Here's why that short description matters. In any Old Testament story, in any ancient Hebrew literature, you only get physical descriptions of people as it matters to the story that's about to take place. You don't get like American novel sort of flowery descriptions about what people look like just for the sake of your imagination. You're told something about a character or an individual's physical appearance because it's going to set up a reality that takes place in the story. Let me give you an example. I mentioned Saul king of Israel. We're told something very succinct about what Saul looks like in 1 Kings. He's a head taller than everyone else. That's all we find out. Why is that what we find out? Well, because it sets up a distinction between Saul and David, who when God anoints David as the next king, is very small, the youngest in his family, out in the field, tending some sheep. And he's brought in and you've got this very tall, kingly looking individual next to this very small person, David, at the time. And what, why does that matter? Well, Saul looks the part of a king and David does not. But Saul gets just about everything wrong and David is a man after God's own heart. And then in the scene that takes place just a couple chapters later, there's a giant who needs to be fought. And who doesn't want to go out? Saul the one who's really tall and looks the part of a king, but who's willing to? David, 
the little one with just a sling, not even wearing the king's armor. So you find out something about who they are and what they look like because it feeds the story that's about to take place. We find out that Esther is good looking. Why? That reality paired up with the urges and the fleshly desires of this king ought to be a recipe for disaster. That's why you're told what Esther looks like. You were told that Vashti was beautiful. The king was using her for his own purposes. Now you're told that Esther is beautiful. What's most likely going to be the case with the king? That he would use her for his own purposes. Last, we're told that Esther is a Jewish woman living in a non-Jewish world. We get that from the fact that she has two names that are given. In verse 7, we're told that her name is Hadassah, that is Esther. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther would be her name in Persian. It's not rare for that to take for the Bible to give us that in the book of Daniel. We're told that Daniel's Hebrew name is Daniel, but his given Babylonian name is Belteshazzar. We're told both. Then throughout the rest of the book of Daniel, he's called by his Hebrew name. Throughout the rest of the book of Esther, Esther's called by her Persian name. Let me give just a quick implication here. Scripture tells us that as Christians, we're to live in the world, not of the world. What the book of Esther and the book of Daniel both point out is what it looks like to try to live faithfully in a culture that is not faithful. What does it look like for a Jewish person to live faithfully in Babylon? That's Daniel. What does it look like for a Jewish person to try to live faithfully in Persia? That's Esther. Here's the struggle. In the book of Daniel, it appears that Daniel and his friends get almost everything right. They don't eat the king's meat. They won't bow down to the statue. Every, at every juncture, it seems like they make the right decision. Here's the struggle in Esther. At multiple points, it seems like Esther and Mordecai make the wrong decision. The point is this. It's very hard. It is incredibly difficult to be in the world, not of the world, and get it right all of the time. If someone were to write a biography of my life or of your life and we were honest with ourselves, even if they wrote just about one season, kind of like we get here about Esther, anyone would read that and think to themselves, they did what? Like, even though they knew that wasn't obedient, even though they knew that was sinful, even though they knew that wasn't like courageously obedient and faithful, that's what Esther paints a beautiful picture of. That it is the responsibility of every Uh, child of God, follower of Jesus, to figure out what it looks like to live in the world, not of the world, in their particular culture. And that is a challenge. It is hard. It's unique given your circumstances, but the principles of God's word are timeless. What we do is we take those and we try to apply them to our setting the best that we can in the most faithful way that we can. And it is difficult. And so Esther is going to get some things right She's going to get some things wrong. Mordecai's going to get some things right. Mordecai's going to get some things wrong. It's complicated. It's imperfect. And if we're to live faithfully as the people of God in our day, it's going to have to be empowered by the Spirit of God. And we're going to have to entrust our whole lives to the sovereignty and the providence of what God is doing and commit ourselves, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to obedience to his word. Verses 8 through 14 are kind of the bulk of the story. 1 through 7 give us some setup. 8 through 14 tell us what happens. So Ben, if you would keep reading for us. 
When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Hegai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Hegai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. During the year before each woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening and in the morning. She would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch Shaashgaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Okay. Here's where we're going to see how it is that Esther, the person, can point us to Jesus. But first we need to look at Ahasuerish. He's got a very warped view of people. He's got a very warped view of women, no doubt. But I want us to see actually how he views all people here. And it's like this, that the people of Persia in the hands of Ahasuerish are expendable, invisible commodities. They're completely expendable. Commodities to be dealt in. Assets to be placed alongside all of his goblets and gold and silver couches and purple and white linen curtains, marble floors. People are really no different to him. One commentator likened the women in this scene who are sent back to the harem and never to be spoken to again as dolls on a shelf in a house out behind the king's palace. They're invisible ornaments decorating the extravagance of his life. Think about what happened to Vashti in chapter one and what was supposed to happen to Esther in chapter two. In chapter one, the king called for Vashti to come in when he was ready for her, was going to use her for his purposes, and then we don't know what was going to happen, but she didn't come, and then he just dismissed her, and we never hear from her again. What's supposed to happen to these women uh, in this sort of twisted kind of beauty pageant, they're supposed to be brought in to the king when he is ready for them, used for his purposes, and then sent out to the harem and never seen from again. That's how he views people. Yes, it's an incredibly, incredibly warped, broken, distorted view of women. Without question, Ahasuerus views women primarily through a lens of using them for his own urges. He views people in general as commodities. You may or may not have noticed, but throughout chapter two, and it happens in chapter one as well, there are multiple mentions of a eunuch. There's no like real sensitive way to say this, but a eunuch was someone who, uh, a male who was brought into the king's service, castrated, and then usually put into the service of overseeing women servants or women in the palace, castrated so that they would pose no competition to the king. 
How does the king view men? Commodities to be dealt in, to be acquired for his own purposes. You may have also noticed that alongside these women that are taking part in the events of this story, there are female servants. So it's not just the women who are part of the uh, process of trying to find out who's gonna be the next queen, but there are also women who are being used in other roles. The king here is just gathering people into his palace for all sorts of purposes, and he doesn't really care who they are. He just wants to use them for his own ends. He views people as we view disposable items. You can buy almost anything in a disposable form today. We're familiar with like paper towels and paper plates and uh, plastic silverware and those kinds of things, but you, disposable razors, disposable cell phones, you can buy almost anything disposable. Use it for your own ends and then discard it. That's the way King Ahasuerus views people. Esther is going to be something entirely different. How do we read this narrative in light of the overriding theological truth of God's providence? How do we read it in light of the truth of who God is? I think the key to that is in how God is going to move Esther into something different from what King Ahasuerus had intended for her. Ben, if you would read the last portion of this, verses 15 down to 18. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. Three times in chapter two, twice in those four verses, we're told that Esther gained or won favor in the eyes of someone. Initially, it happens in the eyes of Hegai, uh, then it happens in the eyes of the king. The question we have to ask ourselves is who is positioning Esther to gain that favor? Who is moving Esther through this so that she would be in the right position to save and preserve God's people? And the answer is God. Though the name of God be not mentioned, the finger of God is. That leads us to the kind of contrasting truth that we see as opposed to how King Ahasuerus views people. The reality of God is this, that the people of the world are valuable, visible treasures in the hands of God. Think about Mordecai. He goes to the courtyard of the harem every day in order to see Esther. In that place where she was gathered as an expendable, invisible commodity, there was Mordecai making sure she knew she was seen. And we watch that little interaction or those interactions play out and we ought to be reminded that Esther is ultimately seen and held by the Lord. 
She's not invisible in that place. She's not expendable. She's not a commodity in that place. She's being moved through this providentially in order that the Lord might use her to preserve his people. The king doesn't really care. Mordecai is trying to pay attention, but God is sovereignly in control. Rather than expendable assets to be used and discarded, humanity has inestimable value. Not just humanity as a whole, but each individual. Genesis 1 shows us that humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation, kind of the cherry on top of all that he's done, the peak of his creating power. Ephesians 2.10 says that humanity is God's workmanship, literally his art or his poem, created in Christ Jesus in order to do good works which serve his purposes and proclaim his glory. Revelation displays the reality that the end of all things, the beauty, the diversity, and the fullness of all the cultures of all of the earth will be brought into the Lord's presence for all of eternity and it will be to his delight and to his glory. He created them. Instead of being invisible and unseen, scripture is full of the reminder that God sees and hears and remembers his people. When the Israelites are crying out in slavery in Egypt, God hears them and remembers them. In Jeremiah 16, God says that the people of the world are not hidden from him. Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight. In the Gospels, we're told that Jesus literally sees people, that they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion upon them. We're also narratively shown how he sees people. A woman reaches out in a crowd and touches the hem of his robe, and Jesus stops what's happening in order to find her and see her have a conversation with her. He goes out to a well in the middle of a day and a woman is out there getting water and she's there in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to interact with anybody else. She didn't go to get water in the middle of the day. But Jesus sees her and has a conversation with her. The people of the world are valuable, visible treasures in the hands of God. No one is invisible to the eyes of the king. God sees you knows you, values you, has a plan for you, will use you for his holy and eternal purposes. This is true of all people. It's true of all people, whether you're Christian or not. That's one thing that Esther is showing us, that if you feel used and invisible, if you feel expendable or like a commodity, if you feel disposable, know that you are so much more. The most powerful way that I can say that is not to try to string together persuasive words or something, but instead is to direct your attention to the cross. There is no more powerful picture of the reality of the value of every human life than the fact that God would send his son to die on a cross for human beings who in their sin deserve to be discarded from the presence of a holy and a righteous God, but instead whom he has gathered to himself by the giving of his son. There's the picture of just how valuable you are. There's the picture of every individual's worth, that the Son of God would go to the cross on our behalf. There are often times for all of us where we feel like no one sees us, no one cares, the world isn't paying attention, or the world just wants to use me and discard me. And the cross ought to be the constant reminder 
that though that may feel true in the world around us, it is not true in the deepest, most important reality of life, how God views us. That's why our statement where we, we, we began this was how God views us transforms how we view others. The grace of God that saves us, the grace of a God who sees us and despite our sin gave his son to redeem us, that same grace ought to transform us. Any obedience rightly understood is always a response to God's love. So the gospel, how God views us then, rightly understood, impacts how it is that we interact with and how we view others. So here's a handle to grasp in this today. Number one, if you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he may be calling you to that today, drawing you to himself. You can submit to that and humble yourself, acknowledge your sin, receive Christ as Savior today. If you are walking with Jesus, then how we're viewed in the eyes of the Lord ought to impact how we view the people around us. If you want to shine like a star in the universe and draw others in to worship Jesus, one simple way you can do that See people, don't use them. The world does plenty of using people. Our flesh makes it so that we might want to use people. And instead of thinking about who they are as an individual, think, what can I get from them? We do that in relationships. We might even do that in friendships sometimes. But if we're to be transformed by how God views us, then we need to understand that people are not commodities, that they're valuable, that they're visible, that they're this piece of art in the hands of the Lord, every single one of them. Let's be practical about that. There are industries that are literally built on commodifying people. Sex trafficking is built on commodifying people, trading them like assets. Any form of human trafficking is built on that. The pornography industry is built on that. Taking people and turning them into a commodity, something that can be just used, viewed, treated like it's something that I take from and that that's all the value that it has is what it gives to me. We can treat people as commodities in just the way that we view television whether it be celebrities or athletes. Look, if you've ever thought to yourself, I could, my team that I root for could really use for this other team's player to get hurt. Then you've treated someone like a commodity. I care nothing about who they are. I just need them to not be there anymore so that I could have a moment of like fan-fueled uh, wonder and happiness. And so if I could just get them out of there, everything would be better. That's treating someone like a commodity. They have no value other than what they give to you. And the way they could provide for you best would be to no longer be there. More tangibly, in like daily ways, how do we do this? I think the, the easiest way to think about this is to think through how you treat workers in the service industry. The waiter or the waitress that comes to your table. 
How do you treat them when the order comes out wrong? How do you treat them when the service is slow? Are they just a commodity? They only exist in this world to get my food out on time, exactly right, the way that I want it, when I want it. How do you treat the cashier that checks you out at Target or at the grocery store? I asked someone who just started a job at Lowe's how often it is that the person that he's interacting with either never gets off the phone or doesn't look up from their phone. And he said probably 70% of the time. He never even gets to make eye contact with the person that he's checking out at the store. It's treating those individuals like commodities. My parents live uh, in a neighborhood with a pool. And my mom on Father's Day was telling me about the raging debate in their neighborhood Facebook group over the way the lifeguards behave. It was unbelievable the way people were talking about those teenagers who are lifeguards at their pool. Yes, service industry, the person checking you out, the lifeguard at your pool, they have a job to do. They should do it well. It's not wrong to want someone to do the thing that they're paid to do, to do it well. It is wrong to treat them like they're just expendable in the role. To not treat them with value. To not dignify them as a human being. My wife and I were at Chipotle one night and it was moving very slowly. I felt like we'd been at Chipotle for four hours and we hadn't made it to actually put in our order yet. And when we were like two people from the front and I'm, you know, like I'm like tapping on stuff. I'm just like antsy to get out of there. Melody said, do you see the workers? And I was like, yeah, I see them. They're going slow. (laughs) She said, they look so beat down. I wonder how long it's been busy like this. I wonder how many times they've had someone yell at them. I wonder what it was, their day was like before they got here. And then we get up to order and I went first and my wife's words weren't super impactful on me. I said, here's what I want on my bowl. Thank you, let's move on. Melody gets up there. She looks right at the person who's uh, asking her, you know, what she wants. And she says, what's your name? And they told her. And she said, has it been this crazy in here all day? And the young man said, it's been like this for a few hours and he started to cry. And my wife had this incredibly human moment with him. You wanna shine like a star in the universe? Imagine how that high school aged young man viewed my wife compared to everyone else who had come in because my wife viewed him differently than everyone else who had come in. God views people as valuable and visible. They're treasures to him. We're going to see the way that he moves Esther through this story in order to save his people who are valuable treasures to him. You want to shine like a star amidst all the brokenness that exists around us? See people. Treat them with value and with dignity. 
That means that if we're going to view people in light of how we are viewed by God, we have to be willing to allow our interactions and relationships with them to cost us something. Look, it didn't cost my wife a lot at Chipotle. It cost her 30 seconds of having a conversation with that young man. But she let it cost her more than I let it cost me when I went through that line. The question needs to be, how can I value this person, not what can I get from this person? The question needs to be, what is this person worth in the eyes of the Lord, not what can I get from them? After all, that is how God displayed the reality of our value to us. He paid the ultimate price on our behalf in the giving of his son. We need to know that grace has been given to us and know that that grace is transformative in our lives and in how we view people. In Esther, we have this star in Persia who ought to point us to worship Jesus. And by grace, we can be lights in the brokenness that exists around us, allowing others to see and to worship Jesus. Amen? Amen. Uh, We're gonna close and we're gonna sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. The words to this fit perfectly with what it is that we're seeing here. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That is what we celebrate in the gospel. The grace that has transformed us and saved us and a grace that we ought to extend to others. Let's stand up and sing.
as we close, worthy of it all.
Close in prayer. God, we thank you that you see us. God, in the, in the middle of all of our sin and in the middle of all of our brokenness, God, you saw us and drew us to yourself. God, that you redeemed us by the blood of Jesus, brought us into relationship with you. God, I pray that those who may not have received that grace, God, that they would feel your pull on their life and in their heart, God, would you help them to see the reality of their sin, to mourn over it and to see Christ as their savior, God, and then to walk in repentance and receive your grace. God, I pray that for those of us who are walking in relationship with you, God, that you would help us to see others the way that you do, God, with value. God, to treat them with value. Would your Holy Spirit empower us to do that in all of our interactions over the course of a day? God, not to just treat people like commodities or assets, not to treat them with a mindset that says, what can I get from this person, God, but to see their value, God, and to act in response to that. Lord, would your Holy Spirit empower us to do that? God, we need your grace to transform our hearts, God, to find the broken, dark parts of us that might still seek to use people and transform those places in our hearts, God. God, would we shine the light of Jesus in the way it is that we see people and would that draw people in to worship you? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. Have a great day.